Good evening, everybody. I'm Claire Fowler, the person who's been sending you emails all summer. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you tonight to the Freshman Assembly for the class of 2017. The original idea behind this assembly was that the entering freshmen would share as a class their first significant intellectual experience at Princeton, and that that experience would take the shape of a classic Princeton course, a faculty lecture followed by a discussion section known as the precept. After listening to Professor Appiah's lecture, you will all return to your colleges to discuss your thoughts and your ideas with your peers. Tonight's assembly is unique, however, in that it continues the conversation that President Eisgruber began with each one of you when he sent you a copy of the Honor Code over the summer and invited you to participate in Princeton's first pre-read. President Eisgruber joins us this evening to continue that conversation and to introduce our speaker. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Fowler. And it's great to see all of you in the great class of 2017 one more time today. I am delighted to see that all of you remain energetic and vibrant after both the pre-raid and the stepsing. I thought you did a very good job learning the locomotive this afternoon. Today's onslaught of orange will undoubtedly be the first of countless raucous celebrations full of flamboyantly dressed Princetonians that you will enjoy for years to come. The pre-raid is one of many fine traditions that celebrate the Princeton spirit. This year, as you know, we are together inaugurating what I expect will become another Princeton tradition, the pre-read. For your first Princeton assignment, I asked you to read Professor Kwame Anthony Appiah's enlightening book, The Honor Code, How Moral Revolutions Happen. I look forward to meeting with you in your residential colleges and elsewhere on campus over the course of this academic year to discuss the concepts of honor and moral progress that Professor Appiah addresses so powerfully in his book. Tonight, it's an honor for me to introduce Professor Appiah as he takes us all on a journey through the ways in which honor has influenced human behavior and shaped societies. Kwame Anthony Appiah, the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Philosophy and the University Center for Human Values, joined the Princeton faculty in 2002. He is a globally renowned moral and political philosopher who has published critically acclaimed works in philosophy and in African and African-American literary and cultural studies. Born in London, Professor Appiah grew up in Ghana, earned his doctorate at the University of Cambridge, and has taught in the United States, Germany, France, and South Africa. In 2012, President Barack Obama awarded Professor Appiah the National Humanities Medal, honoring him for seeking eternal truths in the contemporary world. He was cited for a body of work that for his fellow philosophers and scholars, as well as for the general public, has shed moral and intellectual light on the individual in an era of globalization and evolving group identities. Professor Appiah's search for truth has led him into investigations of subjects ranging from evolutionary biology to political history. His numerous award-winning books include The Ethics of Identity, in My Father's House, 
and cosmopolitanism, ethics in a world of strangers, which has been translated into more than a dozen languages. He is the co-editor co of Africana, the Encyclopedia of the African and African-American Experience. With his mother, the author Peggy Appia, he co-wrote an annotated collection of proverbs from Ashanti, Ghana. And were all this not enough, were all this not enough, Professor Appia has also written the occasional mystery novel. Now, as a, as a fan of mysteries, I can tell you they are quite good. And for those of you who like whodunits, I especially recommend Professor Appiah's book titled Another Death in Venice, which you will find quite different from the honor code. <laughs> Professor Appiah is currently working on books about the thought of W.E.B. Du Bois and the idea of the West. Professor Appiah is a thinker and writer of extraordinary breadth, a devoted and inspirational teacher, and a true global citizen. His explorations of morality and ethics have enriched discussions of human values, not only on the Princeton campus, but also around the world. And finally, he is for me a treasured friend and colleague, an extraordinary man with whom to discuss politics, philosophy, and life. Please join me in welcoming tonight's keynote speaker, Professor Kwame Anthony Appiah. Hi. Uh, th thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you all for thank you all for coming. I know you didn't have any choice, but uh, <laughs> but I'm going to thank you anyway. Um, so I, I was because of this occasion. I was thinking the other day about my first my own first days at university, uh, which um, it, it was distressing to discover were 40 years ago. Uh, <laughs> I began as a medical student because in England, where I was going to college, uh, you had to declare a field before you went to college, and uh, medicine, like law, in England is a, is a pre-professional undergraduate degree. But pretty soon, I found, alas, that getting up early mornings to go to the dissecting room uh, to meet, yet again, the charming corpse with whom I became unreasonably intimate, uh, <laughs> uh, was, was more than I could do. So I, um, so though I was able to stay up all night, buried in books and articles that interest me, I couldn't drag myself to yet another anatomy lecture where bored professors passed on boring facts that Vesalius had already recorded in the 16th century. Uh, so uh, warning to all of you, don't go to science lectures where the professors are teaching you about things that have been known for a very long time. Scientists are only interested in what is new and, and what they're working on right now. You're going to have to learn the basics in order to proceed further, but the really exciting teaching comes when you're working with people who are not trying to transmit information that has been known for 400 years. But I discovered that one of the options for medical students at Cambridge, where I was, was to go to lectures in the philosophy of science. And since philosophy had been my favorite reading in high school, I started attending lectures in the Department of the History and Philosophy of Science, and I was soon hooked. And uh, as good luck would have it, they allowed me to transfer to the philosophy program, and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Um, so uh, 39 years ago, I became a philosopher. Now, one thing anyone studying philosophy of science in the 1970s was bound to notice was how much philosophers had learned 
about the nature of scientific theory and the process of scientific discovery by careful attention to the great scientific revolutions of the past. In what we call the scientific revolution of the 17th century, Galileo, Kepler, Copernicus, Newton, and Leibniz had shown how careful observation and new instrumentation could combine with theoretical rigor to uh, uh, theoretical creativity and mathematical rigor to produce profound reworkings of our conception of the physical world, the natural world. Other crucial lessons came from the study of the revolutions that gave us re uh, relativity and the quantum theory, Darwin's new understanding of the history of life, the development of plate tectonics, and other smaller intellectual revolutions. Well, a quarter of a century later, remembering my long ago reading about these scientific revolutions, I began to explore a number of moral revolutions. I wanted to see whether we could learn something from them about moral life, just as the study of scientific revolutions had revealed much about the nature of scientific knowledge. So my book, The Honor Code, which you've done me the honor of reading, is the result of those explorations. My crucial historical test cases were very diverse, as you know. Uh, Oh, I hit something by mistake. My, thank you. Uh, but thank him. So my crucial historical test cases, as you know, were very diverse. The end of dueling, uh, the, that the lobster head there is the head of the Duke of Wellington, with whom you're familiar, and that is the Earl of Falmouth in the background. Uh, the end of footbinding, the end of British colonial slavery, and a revolution that I hope is underway that is leading to the end of honor killing. And I, I want to begin just by drawing a couple of the crucial lessons that I uh, took from these explorations. So I'm not going to go through those cases. You've studied them, but I want to talk about the, some conclusions. So one conclusion was that um, arguments against these practices were well known and clearly made long before the movements that finally brought them to an end. Not only were the arguments already there, they were made in terms that we, in other cultures and other times, could recognize and understand. So it wasn't new arguments alone that made new practices. The second surprise was that in each of these transitions, as you now know, honor played a crucial role. Now, it's no big news, since dueling is about honor, that the end of dueling came with new ideas about honor. But I think it was strange that ideas about national honor figured so largely in the accounts that I read of the end of footbinding, and that discovery connected pretty immediately with work I'd done in, uh, on what I call the ethics of identity, uh, because in a book of that name, I had explored the ways in which our identifications with, with our religious traditions, with our gender, with our sexuality, our nation, and so on, where identifications of that sort can bind us to others in pride and in shame, and so help shape the individual lives that each of us um, has to make. So I naturally noticed a connection between honor and identity, which I believe was at the heart of these moral revolutions. So here as a quick reminder, are some of the main conceptual lessons about honor that I drew in the course of these historical explorations. So first of all, in a formula that I learned from the anthropologist Frank Henderson Stewart, 
Uh, honor is about rights to respect. Honor is a matter of having a right to respect. Now, honor is something you can lose if you breach the codes that govern it. And, and losing honor leads, if you care about your honor, to shame. So shame is the feeling appropriate to your own dishonorable behavior, and the appropriate response from others is first to cease to respect you and then actively to treat you with disrespect or contempt. Now, respect and disrespect for one person can both be the result of things done by other people because, and here's the second thought, honor is always connected with social identity. You would expect someone who'd written a book called The Ethics of Identity to think that identity was important to honor, but I claim that it's always involved, that we always uh, take honor through identities. And identity, as you may have noticed, actually matters to honor in two completely distinct but very important ways. First, uh, you can share the honor of people, uh, uh, of people whose identity you share. So you can both gain and lose honor in part because of the successes and failures of those with whom you share an identity. Uh, one of my favorite American slogans seen on many bumpers is, uh, a bumper sticker therefore, uh, is um, proud parent of an honor student. Notice that the proud parent of an honor student isn't claiming to have done the things that the honorable student uh, earned honor by doing. Rather, he or she is participating in the honor of the honor student. Um, and therefore, as I say, through a family identity, you can participate uh, in the successes and failures of those with whom you share an identity. You can, you can borrow honor, as it were, from your, those with whom you share an identity. So that's one way in which honor matters, identity matters to honor, but it matters in a second way because honor uh, has these codes and identity determines what the codes require of you. So gender identity, for example, plays a crucial role in many honor codes in determining what you should do in order to have honor. In 18th century England, the codes required men of the upper classes to answer challenges to a duel from other gentlemen. Uh, if a non-gentleman challenged you to a duel, the correct response was to hit him with your horsewhip. <laughs> and if you did accept the challenge from someone who wasn't a gentleman, that uh, made your own status as a gentleman, might put your own status as a gentleman in doubt. So what you were supposed to do depended on your status, whether you were a gentleman or not, and also on whether the person challenging you was a gentleman or not. And of course, uh, in England, as in France and elsewhere, if you were challenged to a duel by a lady, you were obliged to decline. Um, in England, I don't, couldn't find any records of duels in England between ladies. In France, where they do these things more grandly, there, were, <laughs> there are records of uh, duels between ladies, between the, uh, the Duchesse to this and the Comtesse to that, uh, but, uh, but not in England. Anyway, the point is that what the, what the code requires of you depends on your identity. So, and the penalty for breaches of the code is the loss of honor, and therefore the loss of the right to be respected. Uh, and so this is in this third uh, formula, codes of honor govern people of particular social identities and determine how they should behave and more particularly how they should respond to other people, both of their own identity and of other identities. Now, if respect is at the heart of honor, then it's important to notice that respect is, uh, that being respected is being respected by somebody, somebody has to respect you. And usually honor isn't in search of the respect of people in general, 
it requires the respect, it seeks the respect of some particular social group, which I have called an honor world, a group of people who acknowledge the same codes. And in your honor world, some people are your honor peers, that is, they're people uh, who, of, of whom the honor code makes the same demands as it makes of you. So gentlemen are honor peers because the honor code makes the same demands of every gentleman as it makes of every other, as it makes the same demands of every lady, though different demands from the ones it makes of gentlemen. But finally, while it's crucial to recognize that honor is a matter of entitlements to respect, a person of honor cares not, or at least not only, about being respected, but about being worthy of respect. For the honorable person, honor, that is the right to respect, is the thing that matters, not the rewards of honor, that is the respect that comes from being, having the right to be respected. What matters is that you're entitled to respect. You want respect, in other words, but only the respect to which you're entitled. Uh, there's a name for that, it's called the Bernie Madoff problem. Uh, Bernie Madoff uh, acquired a great deal of respect in the world by doing all kinds of things, uh, but he wasn't entitled to the respect he acquired in those ways because the uh, resources that he acquired in order to do those things were, uh, uh, were ill-gotten. So, final schema, an honorable person wants to do what is worthy of respect according to the honor code, but doesn't conform to the code of honor simply in order to get respect and the consequent social rewards of honor. So that's, that's my little theory of honor. And honor is, I think, above all, one of the ways in which societies mobilize a deep feature of the human psyche, which is our concern, the concern that all of us share, for the good opinion of others. We want others both to think well of us and to display that respect. The practice of honor among gentlemen in the 18th century, the honor code in which the duel played so central a role, might seem to have been focused on gentlemen's attempts to maintain just the good opinion of other gentlemen. Um, William Paley, uh, the archdeacon of Carlisle, who became famous for analogizing God to a cosmic clockmaker, asserted less famously about the law of honor that it was a system of rules constructed by people of fashion and calculated to facilitate their intercourse with one another and for no other purpose. Consequently, he went on, nothing is adverted to by the law of honor but what leads, what tends to incommode that, discourse, that intercourse. Hence, this law only prescribes and regulates the duties betwixt equals, omitting such as relate to the supreme being as well as those we owe to our inferiors. Um, uh, a parenthetical uh, interjection here. This is for those of you who've read the Princeton website's discussion of academic integrity, which contains the following paragraph. The most important thing to know is this. If you fail to cite your sources, whether deliberately or inadvertently, you will still be found responsible for the act of plagiarism, even in a PowerPoint. <laughs> End of parenthesis. I think that Archdeacon, Archdeacon Paley was wrong in many ways, but the largest error in his picture was that he didn't recognize, here by the way is Archdeacon Paley in a famous painting by George Romney, um, that the largest error in his picture was that he didn't recognize to how great an extent ladies and gentlemen were enmeshed in networks of reciprocal attitudes, not just to each other, but also to those whom they regarded as their inferiors. So the honor world of the 18th century gentleman, uh, Paley is wrong here, consisted not just of other gentlemen and ladies, but of the whole society, everybody in that society. So consider, for example, what in the 18th century was called condescension. 
uh, and um, I say what in the 80s was called condescension because it's not what we call condescension now. It occurred, condescension in the 18th century sense occurred, when a person of higher status generously treated a person of lower status in a way that presupposed that they were equals. So it was a kindness, because the, the higher status person was ignoring the fact of his or her higher status. And when it worked, it pleased both the person to whom it was shown, the person who was condescended to, and it probably gratified the self-regard of the person who did it, too, so it made everybody feel good. The historian Don Herzog reports an encounter between the Duke of, uh, Eden, uh, Duke of uh, Devonshire, that's him on the left, uh, and John Payne Collier, his librarian, on the right, in the early 1830s. The Duke brought the librarian lunch in the library of Chatsworth, his house, which remains one of the most magnificent country houses in England. And in his diary about this event, Mr. Collier wrote, he always does his utmost to lessen the distance between us and to put me at my ease, on a level with himself. I do not call it condescension, he will not permit the word, but kindness, and I should be most ungrateful not to make all the return in my power. Now, in refusing to say that he was condescending to Collier, the Duke was treating him in a way that presupposed they were equals. And since Collier and the Duke, in fact, believed they were not equals, this denial was itself a form of condescension. So, in this context, refusing to condescend, admit to your condescending to somebody, was itself a form of condescension. Now, in our more democratic age, we cannot admit to condescending in this sense. Nor can we confess the pleasure we indubitably feel in the condescension of our betters. We cannot own up to these sentiments because we find it hard to admit that we think that anybody is better than us, let alone uh, that, uh, and also to admit that we think we are better than anybody else. So one reason is that these practices of condescension, one reason why people don't uh, admit to these uh, status-related attitudes, is that these practices of condescension were challenged by the very changes in attitude, uh, the same process of cultural dem democratization that brought an end to the duel. So in abandoning the assumption that, that, uh, that the, the, the Duke of Devonshire was, was massively superior to his librarian, an assumption that required condescension whenever the Duke simply treated Collier as another fellow human being, the possibility of condescension as a gift to another person disappeared. So nowadays, of course, we'd never praise someone for condescending, as Collier praised the Duke, because we only notice people treating others as inferiors when we think they shouldn't. When people treat, whereas in Collier's world and the Duke of Devonshire's world, there were a context in which it was appropriate to treat people as inferior, and they did it all the time. When people treat others as inferiors appropriately, as we do, uh, when I say to a, to a little, to a three-year-old, oh, you clever little thing, you. <laughs> That's condescending, but we don't, we don't call it condescending because we think it's perfectly appropriate to be, to treat a three-year-old as our intellectual inferior. Still, despite all these changes in attitude, the background assumption of hierarchy is still available, even if we are not willing to admit it. It shows up in the fact that people will certainly admit to resenting insolence, which is a mirror image of condescension, treating a superior as an equal or even as an inferior. We can still agree, even today, that sometimes someone is being impudent or, as we might nowadays say, uppity. 
The hierarchy, by the way, doesn't have to be a social hierarchy. Those, those have mostly disappeared, I think. But, uh, and they certainly don't have to, be a matter of birth, have to be a matter of birth. Impudence is claiming equality with your betters in some respect or other. When um, Dan Quayle, campaigning for the vice presidency of the United States in 1988, compared himself to President Kennedy, Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas clearly thought that that was impudent, and he responded with what we can still call condescension. I knew Jack Kennedy, he said, thundering over the lectern. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you are no Jack Kennedy. That's a, that's a moment of condescension. Now, and I should say that the, this, um, this picture taken at the time is misleadingly cozy. Uh, unless you notice that that is, in fact, not a smile, but rictus. Uh, it was not a very pleasant interchange. So impudence and impertinence are offenses of the same fundamental sort. They involve failing to tailor your, tailor your behavior properly to your station, presuming to act in ways that would require a higher standing than you actually have. And these accusations make sense only if we do have notions of higher and lower status to back them up though the relevant notions do not, as I say, have to be the notions of hereditary status that preoccupied the Duke of Devonshire and his librarian. Now, there is the temptation in this area of a kind of moralism. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas argued in the 13th century that honor is owed to excellence. I'm assuming that here at Princeton we don't need to translate any of the Latin. Um, honor is owed to excellence, and the excellence of a man is measured above all by his virtue which is the disposition of the perfect to the best, as is stated in Aristotle's physics. Why he says it in the physics is an interesting question. And therefore, being honorable, properly speaking, refers to the same thing as being virtuous. So St. Thomas thought that the only standing we should care about is moral standing, and the only legitimate hierarchy is the hierarchy of the saints, of saints and sinners. Now, no one should deny that uh, that one standard that condescension and insolence and impudence can presuppose can be a moral standard. Uh, the, the poor but pious can condescend to the rich but sinful, and that is indeed how William Wilberforce and his evangelical friends in the anti-slavery movement felt about their less pious but more aristocratic superiors. Um, or, to give another example, consider the impudence of comparing your small sufferings to the sufferings of real martyrs. But there are many forms of hierarchy, most of them neither moral nor social, and there are forms of honor and respect that go with all of them. And in fact, something like 18th century condescension, though clearly no longer based on 18th century social hierarchies, is a common enough practice still. We just have lost the name for it. When the president of a university stops to talk respectfully to a student after a lecture, he or she is talking down a hierarchy of academic status and that is one reason why it can be gratifying to the student. Um, lay Catholics and nuns gain the same sort of gratification from the courteous attention of a cardinal. And ordinary citizens gain it from the politeness of a Supreme Court justice or a president. And, re and in reporting events like these, it is natural even for the beneficiary to describe the behavior of the superior as thoughtful or kind and to suggest that it was not to be assumed, which is no doubt why students should probably act with caution when approaching university presidents. Nuns should be cautious in approaching cardinals, including the pope. 
And citizens, even if they are cardinals, should perhaps watch out when they approach Supreme Court justices. <laughs> when inferiors approach superiors, though, condescension in this 18th century sense is precisely what we hope for. We want our superiors to pretend to be our equals. What would upset them most is the opposite response, which is contempt. Contempt can be hate-filled or dismissive, intense or mild, amused or angry, but like condescension, it requires the background system of status. Its natural expression, and it's important for the evolutionary psychology of these matters that it does have a natural expression, uh, tends towards the sneer. I don't know how to sneer, so I'm not going to demonstrate it for you. Um, so to give an example of this, this is uh, uh, Fanny Burney, great novelist, and her character Cecilia in the novel Cecilia, published in 1782, reminds us of a crucial uh, fact about this family of practices and feelings associated with hierarchy, impudence, and, and so on, through a remark that she makes about contempt. Delval, her lover, has told her that they must elope if they're going to marry because, he says, my family will never consent to our union. And this is her reply. Neither then, sir cried Cecilia with great spirit. Neither will I. I will enter into no family in opposition to its wishes. I will consent to no alliance that may expose me to indignity. Nothing is so contagious as contempt. The example of your friends might work powerfully upon yourself, and who shall dare assure me that you would not catch the infection? So the possibility that one person's contempt will spread to his neighbors reflects the social nature of these emotions and attitudes. That's how they work, through our concern for our standing among our fellows, which is reflected in the pattern of their respect and their contempt. And these contagious evaluations are central forces in the social shaping of human behavior. So Cecilia is worried, as she says, about being exposed to indignity. She's concerned, that is, not just about being treated, but even about being thought of in a disrespectful way. So her anxiety is not simply that people won't like her, it's that she will be judged against the standard and found wanting. To honor someone, as I argued at the start, is to make a judgment founded in a claim that they have met certain standards, and that claim is, therefore, itself subject to challenge if it's wrong. You can, of course, reject the standards, but whether or not you accept the standards, you can dispute whether they're met. That's one of the reasons why the evaluations of honor are contagious. If I draw attention to your failure to live up to a standard, others who accept the standard are bound either to share my evaluation or to deny the facts on which I base my judgment. And that, conversely, similar thing happens if I draw attention to your successes, if I honor you. But the contagion of esteem and contempt is not just the result of a convergence on how someone measures up to some criterion. Human social psychologies are built around a disposition to share the standards of those with whom we share our lives. It's just a fact about us that we're inclined to move towards valuing what we discover is valued around us, especially by those whom we like and respect. From the perspective of the judge, to value something, from, from, from the thinker, someone who's thinking about whether something is valuable, uh, to, from that perspective, valuing something is judging it valuable. It's not just a matter of what you happen to like. And so the tendency to converge on a standard is the counterpart in the domain of evaluation of our wider tendency to converge in judgments about all sorts of things, 
Here's an example. In 1935, Muzaffar Sharif and his colleagues published the result of a famous experiment that demonstrated this phenomenon in the case of perceptual judgments, relying on a perceptual illusion that's known as the autokinetic effect, in which a still point of light in a dark room appears to move. Sharif asked people to stare at a light and decide how far it had moved. In most cases, what happened was this. They began with widely scattered range of judgments, because it wasn't moving, but uh, converged eventually on an answer. Finally, he asked people to do the job in pairs, but this time one of the members of the pair was a confederate of the experimenters who'd been instructed to offer estimates that were either above or below those of the real subject. And unsurprisingly, whatever, whether it went above or below, the subject's judgments converged towards the confederates. So the contagion of honor and dishonor is the result of convergences in judgment that reflect the way in which we build a common picture of the world we share. The thought that evaluations are objective, reflecting standards that are not just our own, is a presupposition of a talk, of our talk of what is honorable and dishonorable. Without this thought, you and I would be limited to observing what we individually happen to find worthy, and talk of finding worthy would itself, in the end, be a matter just of private dispositions, contingently related, with, uh, with perhaps with other people's dispositions, but not susceptible to rational discussion. So there would be no real point in speaking of finding something worthy, since you can only find what is there independently of your judgments about it. So the line of experiments that begin with Sharif's work on the autokinetic effect lead to other experiments in which the convergence was, in other, was with what other people said, rather than in what they actually believed. And one reason why that occurs is obvious. People want to be liked, and disagreeing with a developing consensus makes you dislikable. Once you've come to a consensus, though, you will have to do more than express agreement. You will have to live by what you have agreed to, at least to some extent, or you will once more risk the consequences of being disliked. Now, suppose you thought, as many modern people claim to think, that there is nothing that our evaluations are responses to, that they are simply reflections of our desires, socially shaped desires, but nevertheless, in the end, just in the jargon of emotivism, pro and con attitudes. The process I just described would still produce conformity to publicly agreed norms, at least in contexts where defections from them were detectable by others. So I don't have to argue with you about the objectivity of these judgments, provided what Sharif showed is correct. Then this uh, process of talking about honor will produce convergence in judgment independently of there being uh, something that's intrinsically worthy or not. So the system of honor will operate as a central element in the process of sustaining conformity because its contagious evaluations have a particular sort of content. When I honor you for your conspicuous success in meeting a standard, I endorse the standard, I encourage you to go on meeting it, and I support you in your efforts. My esteem for you may be based on one dimension of your behavior, but it'll show up in all sorts of responses to you. If I esteem you, I will trust you, collaborate with you, respect your judgments, perhaps simply like you. These are all things we have reason to hope for in those among whom we live. But our sociability is reflected, as I said, in the fact that we care not just about how we are treated, but how we are regarded. And the attitudes that come with esteem are desirable if you have a normal psychology in themselves. Similarly, and in the other direction, contempt or disrespect or dishonor will be accompanied by a wide range of reactive attitudes that we would prefer to avoid, resentment, anger, and distrust. 
And these attitudes are not only unpleasant in themselves, but they'll lead to behavior that we're likely to find, at the very least, inconvenient. So not only are you evaluated for doing something worthy or unworthy, the mechanisms of honor first point to reasons to act in one way rather than another, reflecting judgments against a standard which they endorse. And second, they add to these reasons because honor itself is desirable, just as dishonor is in itself unwelcome. Now, if you reject the standard, you will still have a second reason to care about honor, the second reason, but since the standards are in fact widely shared, especially within societies, you'll usually have the first reason too. In defending the study of these processes, Jeffrey Brannan and Philip Pettit, who teaches here, have argued that the fact that there is an interactive, improvable system for the allocation of esteem suggests that the economy of esteem ought to be an intriguing area of investigation. And they argued that we have two reasons to care about esteem, which they call, in philosopher's jargon, a pragmatic reason and an epistemic reason. The pragmatic reason is obvious. My interactions with others will usually go better if they respect me, and worse, if they hold me in contempt. But the epistemic reason is more interesting, because one reason for checking whether your peers esteem you is that especially in those who know you, it confirms your sense that you are succeeding in keeping up with the norms. And if you share the norms, then this will bring the good news that you are being faithful, not just to their ideals, but to yours. Because we know we are poor judges in our own case. We have reason to seek the less biased judgment of those who see us from the outside with a less skewed vision. So this epistemic interest of esteem naturally gives you a reason to care about the views of those who know the truth about you and have the right standards. Now, there are, I will grant, a few among us who don't care how other people regard them. Sociopaths, for example, who don't care being caught out in a lie. And perhaps there are some genuinely unself-regarding saints. Maybe Mother Teresa really didn't care what anybody except him thought about her. But by and large, we human beings respond to respect and contempt not because we think we'll get something as a result, but because we can't help it. Some social psychologists have recently proposed taxonomies of the fundamental moral sentiments, the feelings that, as they say, are recruited by cultures to maintain their norms. And their catalog includes responses that relate to the avoidance or alleviation of harm, to questions of fairness and reciprocity, to purity and pollution, especially in sexual matters, to boundaries between in-groups and out-groups, and to what they call awe and elevation, these feelings that bring uh, uh, tears to your eyes when you see someone doing something morally impressive. But they also acknowledge a fundamental human disposition to care about respect. As John Locke put it, Already in 1692, contempt or want of due respect discovered either in looks, words, or gesture from whomsoever it comes brings always uneasiness with it, for nobody can contentedly bear being slighted. And if that's right, then the question about honor isn't whether we mobilize it in the service of moral or other kinds of virtue, but when. So when will honor matter in your lives today? Here are two ways, one local and individual, one wider and collective, in which honor already matters in your lives right now. I'm sure that once I've pointed them out to you, you'll remember many more. First, your community has committed itself, as you know, to the idea that its academic work should be governed by an honor code. This college, like the academy more generally, defines rather complex norms for collaboration on work out of class, which vary by field, 
along with norms from acknowledging quotations and paraphrases, as well as sources of facts and ideas. Uh, it takes the Princeton website two pages to answer the question when you should cite sources. So these are complex, uh, and you need to learn them, but they're complex norms. But it also expects that in your academic work, you'll conform to standards of honesty, including the avoidance of straightforward cheating in exams and the fabrication of data, that are part of the normal framework of moral obligation in social life. So in many honor codes, like many honor codes, ours makes demands and appeals to standards that are not simply moral. In this case, it appeals to scholarly standards. But it also appeals to moral standards as well, standards of honesty. Like all honor codes, you're expected to live up to it mostly because you want, this is consistent with my theory, because you want to be worthy of the respect that someone who lives by the code is given by the community um, uh, because that's what honor is. It's a matter of being entitled to the respect of an honor world. That respect is manifested in part by the fact that we trust you to keep the code. Now, if the record of other colleges and universities is anything to go by, and maybe it isn't, a few of you will betray that trust. Others will fail by not internalizing the code's rules about collaboration or acknowledgement. And of course, you and I know that not everyone who does these things will be caught and punished for them. But I'm confident that most of you are honorable people who will be guided mostly by your own concern to be worthy of the respect of your teachers and your peers, and you wish to be entitled to the self-respect which is one of the things that a decent life requires. Have we seen the main mechanisms by which honor sustains a code are first this internalized sense of honor of those in an honor world, the sense of being concerned to be worthy of respect, and second, the support for conformity to its norms that comes from the respect that your honor peers give you when you conform and the contempt that they display when you do not. I suspect that many of you would have a hard time reporting your friends for an honor violation, but even when you don't report it, the fact that a friend knows that he's achieved a grade that he didn't deserve will weigh on any moderately reasonable person. In fact, if your friends are honorable people, you ought to be able to persuade them to report themselves, because they ought not to want to live with this sense that they've done something unworthy without discharging that sense of unworthiness, which they can do by acknowledging what they've done. Now, one reason why you'll find it hard to report your friends is that the norms of friendship make betraying your peers shameful. So here, the college's honor code comes into conflict with a wider structure of honor, the structure of honor associated with friendship. And that's one reason why the element of reporting on your peers is probably the least successful aspect of academic honor codes when they require it. But it seems to me that when you face a choice between reporting someone who's breached the honor code and being loyal to your friend or your peer, you may want to remember that someone who cheats once may well cheat again, and that someone who cheats is not only undermining the fabric of trust that makes an institution like this work, but also, in the end, harming him or herself. It may be better for someone to take an F, even to take a semester or two of suspension, but come back with a strengthened commitment to academic integrity and to doing the work that gets you grades you can actually be proud of. But if these thoughts aren't enough to make you want to report your friends, and I've just conceded that they probably won't be, you surely have good reason, as I say, to urge them to turn themselves in and at least 
to let them know that you disapprove of what they have done, even if you don't tell anyone else about it. If they have any sense of honor, that in itself should make it less likely that they'll do it again. And if they do do it again, I think you have a reason to ask whether they should be your friends. You have a further stake in the honor code, which leads me to the wider set of issues that honor raises in your lives. The respect in the world that Princeton alumni are entitled to as Princeton alumni, the honor of this school, depends in part on the belief that most of you are honorable people who take these obligations seriously. When someone out there in the world is believed to have gotten away with cheating here, he or she damages not just the reputation of the school, but the honor of its alumni. By which I mean that such people harm all of you who believe that getting a Princeton degree entitles you, as I believe it does, to the world's respect. And so, as I said at the start, the second wider reason why you have to acknowledge honor in your lives is that your individual identity is inflected by the identities of many groups to which you belong including now, the Princeton family. In my book on honor, I mentioned the importance of national honor to democratic politics, recalling the shame to which we Americans were subjected by what happened at Abu Ghraib in Iraq, when American soldiers sexually humiliated prisoners who were supposed to be in their care. This is not something I'm going to show you a picture of, but I think it's too shameful to bear. We often say that a patriot is someone who loves her country. I think a better definition is that a patriot is someone who cares about her country's honor. I'm sure there are things that America is doing that the Americans among you are proud of. But you will each be able to think of things America is doing that it shouldn't be doing or that it could do better. And if you're not American, the same applies, mutatis mutandis, to your country, I'm sure, or countries. But as an American myself, I'm going to close by drawing your attention to one of the things we are doing that arouses in me a patriotic shame whenever I think about it. After steady gains over the last 40 years, something like one in every hundred adults in our country is in prison. No other country has as large a proportion of its population in prison. We have 4% of the world's population and nearly 25% of humanity's prisoners. China's incarceration rate is less than a quarter of ours. The population of the Soviet gulags at its height reached 1.7 million. According to the International Center for Prison Studies, there were 2,292,133 adults in federal, state, and county jails at the end of 2009. One in five of them, by the way, presumed innocent while awaiting trial. So here in the land of the free, we have more unfree people, both relatively and absolutely, than anyone else. What's more, the vast majority of those in our prisons are nonviolent offenders, many of them there for drug offenses. Whether a country that was truly free would criminalize recreational drug use is a question worth pondering, but the full extent of the penalties America's prisoners suffer aren't detailed in the sentences handed out by judges. More than 100,000 inmates each year, men and women, are subjected to sexual abuse, including rape. Many contract AIDS. Uh, people come out of American prisons with higher rates of tuberculosis than they went in. Also higher rates of HIV infection. Our country holds at least 25,000 prisoners in isolation in so-called supermax facilities in conditions that many psychologists would say amount to torture. And anyone who read my friend Atul Gawande's powerful essay, Hell Hole, in the New Yorker in March 2009, should know that they are right. 
here too, alas, we lead the world. Nobody else has as many people in uh, isolation. So I ask you, if you care about your country's honor and your own, what should we, you and I and all our fellow Americans whose honor is at stake, what should we be doing about it? Not a rhetorical question. I don't have a pat answer for you, but I deeply believe it's a question that any American patriot ought to be asking. Okay, I don't want to end on a downbeat. And in fact, I'm optimistic that someone out there in this audience will contribute to solving this problem. I believe that this is a problem that can be solved by the intelligence and the moral imagination of Americans, including the Americans in this room. And let me say again that there are also many things in this country that give me patriotic pride. One of them, in fact, is precisely that we have many great colleges like this one. So, good luck to you all. Welcome to your new honor code. And remember that each of you holds not just your individual honor, but the honor of Princeton University, and thus the honor of every Princeton man and woman in your hands. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, there, are, there are microphones. There's going to be one up here circulating, one up there circulating, and one down here circulating. And the object of the exercise is for you to tell me why I'm wrong. That's the object of the exercise. So uh, the first question cannot be from someone who agrees with me. Hello. Hi. Um, so I have a question. Uh, I feel like you make many absolute, absolute statements in the book and in your speech tonight, um, sort of claiming that honor is a universal value that many people share. You claim that your various examples, which are very diverse, sort of show that. And I sort of question and wonder how you defend that honor is most definitely for certain a universal value or a practically universal value. People argue and debate whether or not we have universal human rights, things along that lines. Is there truly a universal value? Good. And is honor necessarily that value? Good. So first of all, I don't want to say, uh, this is a great question, but I don't want to say that um, honor is, as it were, the main universal value. Or uh, it, I mean, it was what my book was about, so it was, I thought it was important enough to write a book about it. But uh, when, you, when you refer to the, to the human rights, I think there are other very important values that we, uh, the human community is sort of gradually coming to recognize in a universal way. But look, um, what I said was universal was this structure. The content depends upon the codes, and the codes are not universal, right? So I mentioned, take the Pashtun Wali, the, the, the code of the Pashtuns, which I mentioned in relation to Pakistan and Afghanistan. That code is a Pashtun code, and, it, and for example, it places enormous weight on, uh, in, in honor terms, on um, being, uh, uh, on looking after your guests. So if, if you are the guest of a Pashtun head of family, it doesn't matter. You could be an American airman, and he could be a member of the Taliban. But it, while he's your host, he has his honor bound up in looking after you. 
As you know, we Americans don't feel that way about members of the Taliban. We do not feel that just because they're uh, in our houses, we have special obligations to them. So the content of the honor code varies enormously. And, and indeed, in each of the moral revolutions I talked about, the honor code of a particular society shifted in an important way. It, it moved from being dishonorable not to bind your daughter's feet to being dishonorable to bind your daughter's feet. It moved from being dishonorable to refuse a challenge to a duel to being ridiculous to respond to a challenge to a duel. So uh, the content of the thing, but the structure, the structure of rights to respect allocated on the basis of codes that are social, that is the thing that I claim to be universal. And I claim it to be universal partly because I'm, um, I'm disposed to think on the basis of the evidence in sort of evolutionary psychology that there are certain structures that are humanly universal because they're built into us by our, by our biological and our cultural evolution, not just by biological evolution, but biological and cultural evolution taken together, but also because, um, because the evidence is terribly good. If you look, uh, um, I'm t uh, unfortunately none of you can take it because, because it's, the freshmen aren't allowed, but I'm teaching a seminar on honor this term, and one of the weeks we'll be talking about historical evidence about the role of honor in African societies. Um, I gave you in the China chapter on footbinding an example of the role of honor in, in China. Well, that's, that's already, I've got quarter of humanity right there. Um, uh, honor killings occur in, uh, in large swathes of South, area. That's an, uh, South Asia. That's another quarter of humanity. So I've got half of humanity plus Africa without mentioning the duel, uh, which of course was a central. There's a wonderful book, by the way, about um, honor in the early republic. I wish I could remember what it's called, though. But uh, one of the things that happens 40 years after you matriculate is that you, fewer things stick in your mind. Um, but uh, there's a wonderful book which I urge you to go and looking for. Um, and if you can't find it, email me and I'll send it to you, the reference. Uh, by, about honor and the, the role of honor in the, in the American Republic, early in the early Republic. So I think that that's what's universal. Absolutely not universal agreement about what is honorable. Um, I think it's, you know, well, I won't. You, you raised the human rights question, which is a different question. But, but I think I'm more confident. Uh, I think the argument for the universality of the structure of honor is is pretty straightforward empirical argument. The human rights thing is a bit more complicated. But hello, hello, hi. Uh, my name is Rene Shalom, Forbes College, and. I'm standing up because in your book you discuss honor codes as a means to moral revolutions that progress towards morality. But cannot honor be used in ways that are regressive? Was it not honor that led to the Third Reich and the murder of millions of Jews and other ethnic minorities? Was it not honor that led to the American Manifest Destiny and the annihilation of the American Indians? How do you respond to that? Well, uh, well, I, thank you. Fine. Uh, so, con con congratulations to those of you in Forbes College. You're going to have some wonderful conversations. Um, uh, well, the I mean, the short answer to your question is yes, but that's probably too short. Uh, so, yes, it's true that um, uh, honor has, as I pointed out. Uh, you know, honor was behind uh, footbinding. It was, it was on the side of footbinding. It was on the side of slavery 
uh, Atlantic slavery was, this, among, was a labor system, but it was also an honor system, and the honor system was one which, which systematically denied honor to black people. That was part of the structure of the, so, uh, and I'm not in favor of that, by the way. So, so honor, honor does, honor does, um, honor is, is dangerous. Uh, I, I have a whole chapter on honor killing, which is an example of, of where honor is. So, um, if you're going to defend honor, you have to think about, not I think about uh, moving towards the position that I criticize in St. Thomas Aquinas, which is the position that, that honor is, as it were, part of morality. I think honor is a different normative system, but you do at least have to uh, adjust the codes to make it consistent with morality, um, and that requires work. The, the honor has a number of problems. One is that, uh, especially in men, it is associated with large amounts of unnecessary violence. So you might say that honor has a testosterone problem. Um, it's also uh, very much associated with impermissible forms of social hierarchy, right? The, the Duke of Devonshire's conviction that he was superior to, his, to, his, to, to Mr. Collier was not warranted. Actually, Collier was one of the great Shakespeare scholars of the time, and the Duke of Devonshire decisively wasn't. So, um, so, so it, it, it has these problems of violence, it has these problems of inappropriate forms of hierarchy, and it can just be aligned with the wrong values. But I don't think you want to sort of incorporate it into morality or to substitute it because honor is very useful in sustaining values that, have, that are morally indifferent. So honor, we use honor, for example, to reward people who are terrifically good at basketball. Now, there's nothing morally good about being good at basketball. There's nothing morally bad about it either. It, it's, a, it's a matter of moral indifference. But being good at basketball, given the surrounding cultural apparatus is a valuable thing, at least in my judgment, and honoring people who are good at it and who, are good at, and, and, and who don't cheat, uh, honoring those people is, is, a, is, is a reasonable way of sustaining those values. We give honorary degrees. Um, nobody promises that the recipients of our honorary degrees, the ones we give for academics work, uh, are people of any particular moral uh, superiority. We don't, we don't honor them for their moral status. We honor them for their academic work. They may, for all we know, be you know, unpleasant to their spouses, which is, by the way, bad. Uh, but, but we honor them in their academic work. So I don't, want to, I don't think we should conflate honor with morality, because honor is very useful for honoring star, movie stars and act, talented actors, poets, uh, academics, and so on, uh, sports, sportsmen and women. But, but we do want to make it consistent with morality. We don't want it to be, to be putting force, putting its shoulder, as it were, behind the wheel of evil. And, well, um, the, the, again, the, the main mechanism, I mean, the, the general answer to how we do that is we create social movements in which people commit themselves to revised forms of honor. That's what happened with the anti-footbinding societies. That's what happened with the abolitionist movement. Uh, that's what's happening now in Pakistan with, with the anti-honor uh, killing movement. You can't do it on your own. Right? You have to create a social movement. That means getting together in groups and committing yourself to new practices. Thank you. There's a question up here. Hi. Hi. Um, you mentioned tonight a distinction between the epistemic and the pragmatic. And I was just wondering about how, practically speaking, um, I, I really loved the, the constructive point that you made at the end of the honor killings uh, chapter that in order to create um, in order to actually halt honor killings, 
you would have to convert honor from something that, you know, that, that honors honor killings into something that would vilify it and make it into something shameful. And it seems like, and it seems like that's what's really elusive and you, and you discuss all of these moral revolutions, but it's, I wonder how, how it might be able to happen on a more microscopic level, like on a university level. We learned yesterday from our RCAs that one in nine uh, people on Princeton's campus over their four years experiences some form of power-based um, sexual violence and how do we, how do we, like on a campus level, on a more microscopic level, create that turnaround or begin to make that change? Good, good question. Well, so, so this is one of these things where if, if you think it rises to the level of one of the things that we need to be attentive to, then you have to look at what as it were, Kang Yu waited in China, you have to say, we need to commit ourselves. We need to get together in groups and commit ourselves to, uh, not, to not doing this ourselves. It's really important to admit that one might do it oneself, uh, that we're not going to do it ourselves, that we're not going to uh, tolerate it in others, that we're going to call out people who do it, that we're not going to uh, laugh about it or, uh, you know. And, and what happens is that you, you, you create a kind of, new culture, as it were, and it's a minority culture to begin with if, if the problem is as big as, as, as it apparently is. So you, you uh, and it takes time. I mean, the, the, the one, I don't know what to say, I mean, the one uh, sort of thing that struck me about, about the cases that I did look at where there was a success was that it essentially took a generation to make the big change. Now, I don't know about you, given that foot binding went on for a thousand years, 20 years doesn't seem so long, which is about how long it took from the beginning of the decline to the end of it, from 95% foot bound to zero. In most places, it took about 20 years. Uh, and similarly, in 1830, in 1832 or whenever it was, the Duke of Wellington can be prime minister and duel and not be shamed for it. And in 1850, by 1850, it's ridiculous, you can't do it. So another 20-year thing. So, um, and when I tell people that I think it only takes a generation, they say, that's too, that's too long. And maybe it is, but I'm just telling you what I've noticed. Uh, so I think uh, the other thing that I would counsel is patience, because these shifts in, in attitude, uh, they occur to begin with slowly, and then, then you reach a sort of tipping point, and then everybody, oh, almost everybody, comes over to the other side. This has happened before our eyes, at least before my eyes. You're, you're not quite old enough to have seen the whole of this, but I'm old enough to have seen the whole process um, in attitudes to, to gay marriage in the United States, right? I mean, uh, 30 years ago, which is about when I came to the United States, you'd have, thought, you'd have been thought, if I'd said to you 30, somebody 30 years ago, oh, 30 years from now, uh, gay couples are going to be married in New York they would have told me that, that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. They would have said, that's ridiculous. That's never going to happen. Or at least if it happens, it's going to happen much, much longer time scale than that. But a movement was organized. People talked to each other. People uh, uh, talked to their gay friends and so on. And now, um, I don't know what the numbers are, but in your generation, um, probably two-thirds now of people just think it's obvious that uh, gay people ought to be allowed to marry if they choose to. So, these things happen, but they don't happen like that. You can't make them happen 
as far as I can see, in a flash, but you can participate in the making of them happen. And one of the things that Kang Yu Wei could say to himself in his later life was that he could, he could feel the pride of someone who had been involved in a movement that succeeded. And I think, you know, that's something you should think about if this is one of the things you want to work on, that one of the rewards will be a sense of the worth of what you have done, uh, a sense that you're worthy of respect for having done it, and therefore a sense of the honor of having participated in making a good change as a place that you care about. Hello. Hi, my name is Mark Zhang. Hi. And first, I believe that the first questioner deserves some respect and applause for questioning you first. Mm -hmm. And second, I was wondering if you could touch upon the idea of honor in the business world and um, perhaps expand on your point about men like Bernie Madoff, who gained a lot of respect without perhaps deserving it? Yes, I, this is a really, that's a good question. It's a really interesting issue because um, uh, the, if, if you'd asked people, let's say 50 years ago, um, which doesn't seem so long to me, but may seem a long time to you, but if you'd asked, if you'd asked people 50 years ago, what were the, what, what, what were the sort of assets that you took into the world with you if you were a, a banker, they would have said, well, honor, being honorable. Uh, being someone whose handshake means something, that who, who, when they make a deal, they mean it, and you don't have to worry about them coming back uh, later and, and not trying to deliver. Um, I think that, uh, that a reputation of that sort is still an incredible asset in in business generally and in finance in particular. And, and the fact is there are many people, despite, despite the Bernie Madoffs of the world, there are many people who have this, right? People whose, whose business career is based on the fact that you can trust them and that you don't have to, uh, the lawyers will look at the footnotes. The lawyers will read the small print, but, but the, the basic deal is a deal between people who trust each other. And that's a really important asset. And if people don't believe you have that, they won't make deals with you. So the, that's, the, that's the pragmatic reason for being, for, for a concern for, for your honor. It's, it's an, an honorable reputation is an incredible asset uh, in, in contexts where you have to make deals, especially deals with strangers, right? If I make a deal among my friends, there are all sorts of forces, including the respect of, of other friends, that are going to hold it in place. But if I'm making a deal with you business to business and we haven't, we, you know, our relationship is based on the fact that we met in order to consummate this deal, then we're essentially strangers. And, and, and in that context, um, it's enormously important. So you have an instrumental reason for caring about having a reputation as an honorable person. The trouble with someone like Bernie Madoff is that he acquired such a reputation and used it uh, uh, and cheated. Uh, in the course of acquiring it. That is, he, he got it in circumstances where he wasn't entitled to it. So um, if people become convinced that the only thing that is going on is that people are pretending to be honorable in order to consummate deals, then the whole culture of, of the business world gradually degrades because then people are not willing to commit large amounts of resources and time and intelligence and stock and money to uh, a deal 
without going through all the backup stuff. So, um, and I think because we've had a number of crises in our financial world in the last few years, people have reacted by thinking that, as it were, honor has entirely disappeared from that world. I don't think that that's true, but I think there, there is the following problem, and again, Bernie Madoff is sort of instance of this. Um, if you, if the only thing, if the only way you count is money, if the only thing that matters is who got the biggest bonus or who made the biggest deal, and that's, that's the only thing you care about, then essentially you've got the economic and the honor normative systems just running in parallel. And honor isn't able to do any independent work. And in particular, therefore, it's not going to do the independent work necessary to check someone who can make more money by doing the dishonorable thing. Right? So honor needs to be independent of money. And if we just honor people for being rich, irrespective of how they got to be rich and, and so on, then we're, we're at least diluting and possibly degrading and possibly, in the end, eliminating the power of honor to do its distinctive work. So it's, it's really important. I mean, many, uh, if, if you're like previous Princeton classes, many of you <laughs> will end up in the world of finance. How many of you think that now, that you will end up in the world of finance? Okay, that, that number's gonna go up. <laughs> and it's really important when you do go there to realize not just that this matters instrumentally, but that it, it's gonna, it matters to your sense of who you are, uh, of whether you can feel entitled to self-respect, and self-respect is one of the fundamental goods in a decent human life. And, uh, you know, so it's really important not to conflate success as measured by money with what is to be respected. Being good at making uh, money in legal and respectable ways is an achievement in finance. That's what your job is. You're entitled to claim respect if you find new and original ways to do that. That's, I don't have any problem with that. But, uh, but still, it's the new and original and the, and the distinctive that are interesting and worthy of, I think, honor rather than just the amount of money you happen to come, come up with. You know, uh, there was another guy there was, a, um, again, names escape me, but uh, who um, some years ago, you, you won't know him because it was when you were too young, but uh, who was sent to prison, the guy who invented junk bonds, Milken. Milken, right? Yes. Uh, he, he ended up in prison. And Milken uh, was asked why it mattered to him that he got the largest bonus on Wall Street. And... Um, he said, because he, because he lived in the same house, he didn't, have, he didn't have expensive tastes, he didn't have fancy cars, he didn't buy aeroplanes, he didn't have, buy chateaus, he just put his money into foundation, which is doing good work. Why was it important to him, he, they asked, to, to have the biggest thing? He said, because it's how I keep score, right? Well, he was in a world in which that is how you keep score, and that's fine as long as it doesn't disrupt your moral compass. What I understood from your book and your lecture is that honor codes uh, differ widely across cultures and across time, 
and they're very tied to our social identity, which those codes can be either consistent or inconsistent with morality, but that implies that morality is very absolute and independent from the social identities, and I was wondering why you claim that. Well, I think that, I'm not sure, I, and maybe it's an implication of things I say, though I, it wasn't what I was particularly arguing in this, in this book. Um, well, um, I don't think that it's entirely true that uh, what morality requires of us is independent of our social identities. Um, so, for example, I mean, I think that is that there are many morally, not just morally permissible forms of what philosophers call partiality, which means treating people of some group uh, better than people of people in general. Um, not only do I think there are morally permissible forms of partiality, I think there are morally required forms of partiality. Uh, so, for example, um, I ought to give special weight to the education of my children. The education of children in general is important, but the education of my children is of special moral significance to me, and if I don't take special interest in it, I'm doing something wrong. So I don't think that, uh, and, and similarly I think, that you're entitled to take special care for your own country. I, I, uh, all governments should be democratic and responsible and respect human rights, but I have a particular concern that my own government should do those things, uh, and so on. So um, in that sense, I think I, your identity does make a difference to what morality either permits or requires you to do. But you presumably have in mind a different thought, which is that, um, which is that your identity can somehow shift what it's permissible for you to think about what is morally required. Is that your thought? Yes, and th that's the thing that I don't get. So you just g tell me why you think that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Sorry. Um, I actually don't know my thoughts exactly on that. Okay. But I know people argue both ways. So I was yes, wondering yes. why you lean toward uh, well, more moral absolutism um, rather than relativity. Uh, so, you know, there are many, as I said, there are, I, I believe there are legitimate forms of partiality. I also think that uh, what's good for one person cannot be good for another person because I think what's good for you depends on things that are about you that, that may differ from other, and in that sense, I think what's good for people is relative to, for example, what their projects are. I'm, I'm as the president was kind enough to mention, a mystery novelist. It matters to my life that I write mystery novels and that they be moderately good. <laughs> it doesn't matter to you, unless you have the same vocation, it doesn't matter whether you write any mystery novels, and if you do, it doesn't matter whether they're any good, because uh, you don't have it as part of your vocation. So, there are lots of spaces for relativity, I think, but, but what I don't have, have is, the is, is a reason, what I don't think is that uh, when you've thought about all the things that are relevant to making a particular moral decision, then, um, you can't then, as it were, add in at the end of all those considerations. And because I'm an X, I judge in the light of those facts that such and such is okay. I think that once you've considered all the relevant things, and your identity may be relevant in the ways that I suggested, but once you've considered all the relevant things, I don't see what the point is of a further step of saying, and you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion at this point, so I can take these facts and draw a different conclusion. I know that the world is full of people who think that. I understand where you're coming from, as it were, or, where, or the position you're trying to 
get me to respond to. But, but I think that it's often motivated by, some of it is motivated by a failure to recognize that there are these other legitimate forms of relativity. Uh, and some of it is motivated, I think, by the thought that moral facts, if there were any, would have to be very peculiar. And, uh, and, and uh, I agree with that. If, if there were moral facts, if, if there are moral facts, they're not like other facts. Um, I actually, but, but still, I don't see that it follows from that thought, uh, either that there aren't any moral facts or that, um, or indeed that there have to be moral facts in order for there to be objective answers to questions about what's right and wrong. So I think there are objective answers to what's right and wrong, but they depend upon the total constellation of facts, including who's involved, right? So that the very same situation involving me means that it's my spouse that I should care for. It's a very, exactly the same situation involving you. Well, it's your spouse that you should care for. You don't have any special reason to care about my spouse any moral obligations to my spouse that are different from your obligations to people in general. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Professor Apaya, my name is Nick. Um, so you argued in your book, and I would agree with you, that the world would benefit if the honor code of the world were realigned to reflect values based in fundamental human dignity. Um, as I said, I agree with you there, and yet you referenced in the book and again several times tonight, that the truly morally righteous individual would seek to do morally good actions simply because they are the right thing to do and not because they're motivated by pride or esteem or social standing or any of the other benefits conferred by an honor code. Do you see a moral disconnect between using such an honor code and the motivations of pride, esteem, and regard of others um, to, an, to, in essence, um, motivate people to do moral actions not for their own sake? Um, that's a good question. I, I was, uh, I think in the book I was, I was, as it were, admitting the thought that, that, that a good person would do what's right just because it was right. Uh, um, as we say, arguendo, that is, for the purpose of argument, I, I didn't do much to defend that thought, which of course is it's a thought that is uh, central to the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Um, I... Uh, Um, uh, what matters, m many things matter from the point of view of morality. It matters what we do, it matters what we feel, and it matters what we are. A good person is good, feels the right things, that is, responds emotionally appropriately to the world, and also does the right things. Um, so, and, it, but in the end, as I said at the start of the book, morality is practical. That is, in the end, at the heart of it is what we do. And you have a choice here. If you abandon the honor system, then you lose one of the mechanisms by which we can help each other to do the right thing. Right? It's true that it's at the cost of making us, of, of accepting that we are less morally ideal than we would be if we just did the right thing because it was the right thing. This is in cases where uh, honor and morality interact. As I said, there are cases where honor has nothing to do with morality. Um, I think that it's enough of a benefit 
that it will help people to do the right thing, that, that I'm willing to accept the consequence, that that amounts to accepting that we won't be, in the foreseeable future anyway, the best kinds of people. The best kinds of people wouldn't need honor to move them along, that is absolutely true, but we aren't the best kinds of people, we're what we are. And what we are is creatures who can be helped to do what's good by a properly functioning honor system. Um, so, yes, it's true that if we were all saints, none of this would be necessary. But we aren't. And uh, it, it looks like this is one of the mechanisms, we, the social mechanisms we have for helping each other to do good things. So, would you categorize your argument as fundamentally utilitarian? Um, well, you mean something like consequentialist. Um, uh, no, I, well, uh, um, because I don't think that only the consequences matter. I, I just said that there, I, I think many things matter. Among the things that matter are the consequences, including what we do. But it isn't the only thing that matter, and in that sense, I'm not a... I'm not a, a sort of end maximizer. I think actually we have time for one more question. <laughs> Sorry. Hi. Hi. Nowadays we hear a lot of talk about cultural relativism and the importance of acting in a politically correct um, manner. So I'm wondering when there is a society that is acting in a morally reprehensible manner, how are we able to condemn them? Um, and bring about a moral revolution when we will be at risk of being condemned of being a bigot. Um, good. Did everybody hear that? Yes. Um, well, so um, I believe that this is basically stuff from another book of mine about global ethics, cosmopolitanism. Uh, I believe that we are um, all citizens of the world, that we have moral obligations to everybody, not just to people in our own societies, but that we have, as I said, apropos of partiality earlier, special obligations to people in our own society, and that we have to trade, we have to balance out. Uh, uh, we, we have to give other people in the world what we owe them, uh, but we can give more to our family, our community, and our country. Um, Given that that's what I think, and given that I also think that when you take all the relevant facts into account, there is usually a morally correct answer to the question uh, whether a practice or a, an act is okay, um, I just think that it's, uh, it's, it's not a legitimate criticism of someone who says about a practice in another society that she understands, that she has taken the trouble to to make sense of and to see that she really understands it. Well, I, I see what's going on there and I understand what's going on there, but I think it's wrong. I, I don't see how you can criticize such a person, whether you call them politically incorrect, I don't care what you call them. Uh, what, whatever anyone who does that is called, um, it seems to me they're making a, a legitimate judgment. The question what you do once you've made that judgment is a bit more complicated. Because, first of all, the fact that people in some other place are doing a bad thing um, doesn't yet suggest anything to do except to figure out how you might persuade them to stop. And it may be very unclear what you can do to persuade them to stop. Uh, often, sending the Marines is not a good way of changing people's moral minds. So that 
um, simply, as it were, trying to force them to stop, well, that, that they'll, you know, they'll stop while the Marines are around, but, uh, but then you're going to bring the Marines home, presumably, at some point, and then, anyway, you know, a lot of the time the Marines aren't watching. So I think um, we have to figure out forms of dialogue across societies in which we are speaking to each other all the time about all kinds of things, and if we have those kinds of relationships across societies, what I call cosmopolitan conversation, to give it a jargon name, if we have cosmopolitan conversation going on, then uh, when these issues of arise, they will arise between people who are already engaged in respectful conversation with one another, and we can say to them, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're cutting the genitals of your girls, and we think that's against their interests, and that you, you ought not to be doing it. Uh, if we are having those conversations, however, they will be telling us things too. And if we don't listen to what they say about us, there's no obvious reason why they should listen to what we say about them. So I would say that in many of these conversations, it'll come up, for example, that our society has engaged in large-scale killing in other societies in recent years uh, for reasons that are opaque to many people uh, and uh, at a cost in, in human suffering that seems unwarranted by whatever has been gained by it. And we have to listen to that if we're going to be talking to other people about what they're doing. Um, so I don't see the point of... The, uh, often these criticisms are criticizable because they're made by people who haven't bothered to do the work of figuring out what it is that's actually going on in the other place. So a lot of the criticism of female gentle cutting in the world is vitiated by the fact that the critics don't actually know what's going on. They don't actually know what the practice is. They can't tell you what it is that's being cut, for example. And the answer is different things in different places. They don't know what the effect is. They don't know that in some places the effect of female genital cutting has a profound effect on, on the sexual experience of young women, and well, women throughout their lives, uh, and also uh, produces disease, and in other places there are more minor things which don't have a big effect on sexual pleasure. I mean, they don't know those things. If you don't know those things, your criticism is uninformed and disrespectful, of course it won't have any impact. But if you are informed, and if you are speaking to people as equals, as fellow citizens of the world, as other human beings, in, in a conversation that's, go, that's ongoing and is about many things, then it seems to me you can have useful, you can play a useful role. Remember the Reverend Richard in uh, China and his effect on Kang Yu Wei. The reason Reverend Richard had a powerful impact on Chinese intellectuals, including Kang Yu Wei, was because he respected the Chinese. He took the trouble to read the Confucian classics. He took the trouble to translate the Bible into good Mandarin into beautiful Chinese. He, took, he dressed like a Mandarin, right? He expressed his respect for their civilization. And then, as, a, as the Chinese would say, as an old friend, as, as somebody who was committed to an equal relationship with them, he, when he said, by the way, this doesn't look so good, that counted for something, right? So, um, final point about this, um, you know, clearly the biggest if you talk to human rights people, one of the biggest challenges in the world today is about, is about gender equality in terms of human rights. In order to make progress there, we have to be engaged in a respectful conversation in the society, with the societies in which the things that are troubling about gender inequality are going on. We are not in that position, unfortunately, with many of the societies which are 
uh, most troubling in this respect because we, I speak as an American citizen, the United States, our public culture is not, is, is profoundly disrespectful, for example, of Islam. We don't know very much about Islam. We say idiotic things about Islam, which just manifest the fact that we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, we, 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 we fail to distinguish among Muslims. We treat all Muslims as if, uh, as if the, the, the bad things that have been done by a tiny number of Muslims have been done by all of them, or even been supported by all of them, which is ridiculous. Until we have a better face-to-face uh, -face -face dialogue of equals with, uh, with uh, Muslim societies, we aren't going to be able to have the kind of respectful conversation which can be helpful in getting the Saudis to see that it's ridiculous that women can't drive in Saudi Arabia, which is a, uh, getting uh, change to occur in the places where female genital cutting is going on. All of these things depend upon a background of respect, not condescension, not looking down. These are, these are things that we can only work on if we speak to each other across societies as recognizing our moral um, equality. There has been enormous success. Let me just met, let, let me end with a good story. Uh, female genital cutting was widespread in Senegambia, in, in West Africa. Uh, well, it is widespread, but it's going. And one of the organizations that's getting rid of it is an organization called Tostan, begun by a woman who comes, as it happens, from Minneapolis. But she lives now, she, she's moved her base to West Africa, to, to Dakar. And um, the reason it works is because when they go into villages, they don't go in waving their fingers and saying, you terrible people, you're cutting the genitals of your daughters. They go in and they say, we want to tell you about health and human rights. We want to tell you what rights you have under international law and under the law of your country. And what happens in these long, ongoing conversations is that the women themselves in these communities say, you know, it doesn't seem to us that it's consistent with these ideas, which we like that we should go on doing this to our daughters. And at that point, then you say to them, well, now you can, here's what you can do. You can organize, you can get into those groups. Who was it I was talking to you down here? You can get into, you can make, I oh, was up there. You, you can form groups in these villages. You can commit yourselves to new practices. The new practice is of finding another way to celebrate the fact that a woman has reached maturity, sexual maturity, than to cut her, to cut her genitals. Um, and, they do that, and they do it in communities because, uh, as with foot binding, female genital cutting is in many communities historically a condition for marriage. And so if you stop doing it, you make the women unmarriageable unless you persuade the men in the community that it's okay. So you can't just do it by talking to the women. You have to talk to everybody, and you can't just do it by talking to people in one village because people marry people from other villages. So you have to do it in a community as a whole, but when you do it in an intermarrying community, thousands of villages have given up the practice in the last decade. But it began with a respectful conversation. It began with a conversation that acknowledged that these were people who were honorable, who were worthy of respect. They were doing a bad thing, though they didn't recognize, perhaps, that it was bad. But they were people worthy of respect. And if you grant them that honor, then you can talk to them as, as equals, as peers. And then, it turns out, you can persuade them to stop. Thank you all very much. <laughs>